When you were young, you might have had a relative tell you that you need to choose your friends wisely. Uh, for some people, that kind of feels like throwaway advice because in some ways, you're like, I, I'm just friends with whoever was around. It's not like I chose them. They just kind of were there. Uh, maybe, maybe even finding friends or making friends is a little bit difficult for you or something that is, doesn't feel like something you actually could choose. Uh, and if you're on the shy side, I will say choosing to connect with other people may not even be something you're always definitely looking for. Uh, and if that's the case for you, you might resonate a bit with this meme uh, from about five years ago go, says, how introverts make friends. And the little sliver is dogs count as friends. And then the bigger part in there is an extrovert found them, likes them, and adopted them. Which I think that this diagram might explain how I was able to get married. It was, there was an extrovert found me, liked me, adopted me, made me her husband. It was good. <laughs> the reason we're told to be, or our friends or family told us to be careful about the friends that we choose is because we know that the friends that we keep, they rub off on us. Uh, over time, we tend to kind of look alike, talk alike, to dress alike. We even might start to like some of the same stuff. Uh, but we're going to be like our friends that we're with. And you probably have experienced this with some of your friends. Uh, you got similar haircuts, uh, you watch some of the same shows, or suddenly you and all your friends are getting super invested in pickleball, right? It just starts to happen. And your parents were not concerned about the pickleball part. They wanted you to choose your friends wisely to avoid all of the bad stuff, right? Thank you for that, Jim. It was getting a little warm in here. One of our air ACs is not working great. Uh, our friends, though, we can be a good influence, too, on, on our lives. Um, I had a friend in middle school named Paul, and I remember this time when I, we went out to the reservoir, and uh, we were with our couple of families, and I found a half a pack of cigarettes on the ground. And I was like, yes, we're totally going to smoke these. So I grabbed the cigarettes and kind of real quietly grabbed the cigarettes and put them in my towel or whatever, and then I whipped them out to my friend Paul later on. I'm like, man, we're going to smoke these. We're in middle school. This is a good idea. And he's like, no. And his, and his reasoning was kind of ridiculous. He's like, my dad used to smoke, so he's going to probably smell it on my breath. So let's not do that. And it was kind of just enough of a bummer that I was like, fine, we won't do the thing. Okay, fine. But he was a good influence on me. He had a good influence on me. So our friends can be a good influence too. You might have had the opposite experience. And let's be real. For some of you, if there had been the internet when you were a kid, you might not have been able to get the job you had, right? Because, and when you did those things, whatever they were, you were probably with your friends. You were either being influenced by your friends or uh, goaded on. Maybe you were the friends that made them do that kind of stuff. Because our friends, they shape, they shape who we become. Our friends have that influence on us. Well, the message of the Bible teaches that our group of friends around us, it, uh, it is determinative. But in addition to that, one of the things that might surprise you is that our worship is determinative, that we become what we worship. And it's not that over time that we might become like that, but we will. We will become what we worship. We know that you are what you eat, but in the same way, we are what we worship. So it's not that strange to think about that. To worship something is not just Something that happens at church or in a temple, though, uh, I guess in some ways what you might call worship, it's kind of like a, a, a Christian word or something or a, 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 a faith word, but really ultimately what it is is we just give value to something. That's what it means to worship that thing. 
And we all have a hierarchy of what we value. Some things end up winning out over other things. So when that thing wins out, what we do is we make room for that thing. We make it a priority. We make that thing happen. We start to center our lives around it. So it's not strange then that we start to resemble that thing that we worship because we've built our life around it. And some of you, somebody just thought, that's the pickleball. Your life revolves around that. I I know that, yeah. So uh, we can actually observe what people worship by the pattern of their lives. Over time, we can start to see what thing is actually winning out. It's it's not just something what somebody says, it's what we see. We can identify, for example, if somebody worships success, because they start to, they will choose in that direction over and over again, that we'll see that they, uh, that they make plans for their future. Um, they are choosing their success over other concerns. They, they want to um, do what they need to get ahead. They make a plan. Uh, they maybe choose success over personal comfort. It can be a positive thing like that, but maybe it's also they choose success over relationships. And maybe they end up choosing success over their morals. And their words might say one thing, but the pattern that you'll see overall is that you can observe what is actually true. Another person might say, hey, I I care about you. You're my friend. I love you. I want to be with you. But overall, they can say as much as they want that they care about the family. But over time, the consistent pattern will show what they actually do value, what they actually worship. And if, if there were an objective observer of our whole schedule, of all of our thoughts, of all of everything that's going on for us, they would point to the top values in our lives as well. And what we're going to see in this passage we're going to look at in the prophet Jeremiah today is that that people have become what they worshipped. Rather than worshipping the true God, they put God on the side and they've worshipped empty idols. And in the process, they themselves have become empty. This is a little bit of a a funny topic for us to get at today. If you're a guest of somebody today or otherwise this is your first time here, I want to tell you, welcome. I'm so glad that you've joined with us. Uh, To explain kind of where we're at right now, we're in the middle of a message series uh, where we are basing it on the prophet's in the Bible. And uh, sometimes in our messages here at Simi Covenant, we'll look at one specific verse or we'll look at a theme. What we're doing during this time is to try to uh, look cl- bigger at the bigger story of what God is doing in the world. Uh, we're taking a whirlwind tour of these books of the prophets and trying to just understand a little bit better, trying to immerse ourselves in the bigger story of what God is doing. And so we're taking this whirlwind tour of the prophets. And these are books that people, even if you have been involved at church for a long time, you may not know these really well, either because you just haven't taken time to read them, especially not at length, or because, you know, frankly, they have a style that's really different than what we're used to. So they're a little less approachable. What we said before is that this is not always fast food. But they, are, they do have amazing things to say to us today. When we hear the word prophet, we tend to think about somebody who looks to the future. But we said a few weeks back that the main job of a prophet is actually like being a watchman, somebody who stands guard on the wall and who looks out for dangers up ahead and warns the people if there are dangers. They alert people to danger. And so there are some parts of these books that do look forward to the future, but the main things that these prophets, these people are trying to do is to speak to the social and spiritual dangers that people are out, that are out in front of people. 
So in these messages that we're reading here, uh, these prophets, they speak partly to the surrounding uh, nations around them, but I will tell you, the main thing is that it's aimed at God's people, and he's calling them to come back to the Lord, to return to him. So in the same way, when we approach these things, we're going to say that as we approach these things, when we read this, we're going to try to put into, into practice what we, un, we, we do understand. We, we know that this does have implications for the whole world, but our main emphasis here is that we're going to say, what, what is this going to mean for us? Our main application is always going to be on us. Let's pray that we may understand this. Lord, we ask you today to help us by your Holy Spirit. To, to understand your word, uh, to, to receive even what you have to say in it, and to apply it well. We, we want our gaze to be on you. May, may you help us to be courageous, to respond well to you as well. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right. We have started uh, in this whirlwind tour. We are reading through the book of Jeremiah right now, if you want to join with us. And we read this last week uh, up to, I think, through chapter 17. Uh, what I have been doing is just picking one passage in that that's a bit, uh, maybe an important passage or indicative of the larger story. And what I've chosen is from Jeremiah 2. So we're going to read this. If you have a Bible and you want to open it to Jeremiah 2, you may. It's kind of right in the middle of your Bible. Uh, do you know that Bibles have tables of contents, and there is no shame in using the table of contents in the very front that's good. So Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, or actually Lamentations, but Ezekiel. Okay, this is Jeremiah chapter 2, and I'm going to start in verse 4. Listen to the word of the Lord, people of Jacob. People of Jacob is the people of Israel. All you families of Israel, this is what the Lord says. What did your ancestors find wrong with me that led them to stray so far from me? They worshipped worthless idols and only to become worthless themselves. They did not ask, where is the Lord who brought us safely out of Egypt and led us through barren wilderness, a land of deserts and pits, a land of drought and death, where no one lives or even travels? That's referencing the story where God brought people out of Egypt in the Exodus. And when I brought you into a fruitful land to enjoy its bounty and goodness, you defiled my land and corrupted the possession I had promised you. And look, it's the, uh, the, the fault is also on the leaders. The priests did not ask, where is the Lord? Those who taught my word ignored me. Pay attention, Kurt. Uh, the, rules, the rulers turned against me, and the prophets spoke in the name of Baal, as a, a god at the time, wasting their time on worthless idols. Therefore, I will bring my case against you, says the Lord. I will even bring charges against your children's children in the years to come. Go west and look in the land of Cyprus. Go east and search in the land of Kedar. Has anyone ever heard of anything as strange as this? Has any nation ever traded its gods for new ones, even though they are not gods at all? Yet my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. The heavens are shocked at such a thing and shrink back in horror and dismay, says the Lord. For my people have done two evil things. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and they have dug for themselves cracked cisterns that can hold no water at all. Okay, so... 
If we were just having a normal baptism day, this is not necessarily the passage I would just pick for this, just for the record. But we're reading through the book of Jeremiah, and this is really helpful. So the context is that over time, the people have increasingly looked like the nations that are around them. They have started adopting the worship practices and worldview of the other cultures around them. When God said, I want you to be different, I'm trying to make you different and keep you individual. And they ended up worshiping this other gods, like this Baal and these idols. And if worshiping God is a little bit like swimming in a backyard swimming pool, you can imagine that, crystal clear, that's the way it's supposed to look. What the people have done is that they've started pouring buckets of mud from the mud pit next to them, this mud pit worship of Baal and other idols. They keep taking bucket loads of that and dumping it into the pool. And and now the pool's waters are super muddy, and it's gone on long enough that it's kind of hard to tell the difference now between the mud pit and the swimming pool. If you've been reading along with us uh, in this time, you know that in the book of the prophets, you can't miss that God does not like that kind of idolatry. It's been a perennial problem for God's people, and it is something that makes God kind of crazy mad. He does not like it. Well, what, what is this idolatry? Um, at this point in history, people did actually make small figures of gods and set them up in their homes and in public places. Those figures represented a spiritual reality. They, I don't think everybody really thought that that was actually the god, but they, they believed in this other reality and they were worshiping that. And throughout the history of God's interactions with his people, he's warned them about worshiping these other gods or, or making idols. In fact, the first two commandments of the Ten Commandments relate to this. Like, don't do that stuff. And the consistent message of Scripture is that there is one true God. And that God is the source of all true life and goodness and love. And we are supposed to, in a right response to Him, we're supposed to give value to that God. We're supposed to make room for him. We're supposed to make him the center of of our lives. But obviously, we don't do this. Not then, not now. Uh, Idolatry doesn't have to be a statue or something like that in your house, although it might be. The essence of idolatry is making something other than God our ultimate source of life or meaning or fulfillment. And that's a place that only God is supposed to occupy. And when we realize that that's the essence of idolatry, when we realize that there's, this isn't something that just happened way back when, but it's something that's an ongoing issue of the human heart. Because we're constantly seeking other sources of meaning and fulfillment. Well, you still might ask the question, all right, well, why is it still such a big deal? You know, why, why does God care so much about what he calls idols? Isn't it just people choosing their own spiritual path? Why does he care? Isn't it enough, actually, that people are kind of spiritual? Well, in verses 12 and 13 of chapter 2, we, we get an idea of why God doesn't like it. He says this, The heavens are shocked at such a thing when they switched gods, and they shrink back in horror and dismay. For my people have done two evil things. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and they have dug for themselves cracked cisterns that can hold no water at all. Well, okay, why all this shock and dismay? It gives at least two meanings. It says, they have abandoned me. So we can hear some of the relational aspect of this. Uh, This feels like unfaithfulness to God. 
He, he has been with them throughout history. He says, hey, you know, I'm the one that brought you out of Egypt. I did all these things for you. We've been together. We've done stuff. We have history. Come on, why are you going to turn on me now? And I've done all these great things. And so he, it's seen now as this unfaithfulness on the part of the people. If you were here a few weeks ago, we touched briefly on the book of Hosea, which is actually a long allegory explaining how God sees his people, his people as his, as his wife, as this beautiful, faithful wife, and that image uh, is, is we are supposed to be faithful to him, but we have not been. And that image ends up carrying over into the New Testament, uh, that we are the bride of Christ, and, and God rightfully perceives idolatry then as our unfaithfulness to him. Our, our hearts are turning to somebody else. He says, I, I want you. And so there's a, there's a part where God's just saying, my heart is broken. You're turning away from me. It's, it's a problem. So at, uh, one author writes this, he says, at the root of idolatry is the human rejection of the godness of God and the finality of God's moral authority. We're, we're saying, God, we're, we're breaking our relationship with you. You aren't in charge of us. We want something other than him. So it's breaking that relationship. The second part is that idolatry is a problem because God is the source of living water. That's what he says. And the alternate solution is kind of pretty stupid. Um, on the one hand, you have the fountain of living water. And on the other hand, we have this cistern, a cistern that we have dug. Cistern is a place that you, you dig it out and you want to hold extra water. Uh, and it needs some kind of a, a membrane in there to hold water. But this one is cracked and it leaks. It can't even hold water. Uh, the, the, I remember learning the word cistern. It was when I, I lived in Mexico City for uh, a summer. And the family there had, because sometimes water would not always come at the same time, they had a big cistern as a part of the, of the church, and they would fill that when the, when the power was working and the water was on in that corner of the city. And it was a place that you could always get water when you needed it. But it, this cistern is cracked. It can't even hold water. So it's kind of, it would be comical if it weren't tragic. We need water to survive. We need water for our daily life, not just for our bodies. We need it to have it, but we need it for all of our daily tasks and, and imagine if somebody had a stream that was flowing right next to their house. This is the kind of stuff you see in like Switzerland, in the Alps, right? Somebody's got an actual stream going along next to their house. But instead, imagine if that person says, I'm not going to draw water from there. What I'm going to do is I'm going to dig a cistern. I'm going to dig a well or some kind of thing here. Uh, a cistern holds it. A well, you know, you're able to access more water. But there's a cistern. And I'm going to have this thing. And I'm just going to catch whatever rain comes. But... Um, it turns out, yeah, I'm going to use this one that has the hole in the bottom. It seems crazy. And, and that's what God says the people are doing. That, you know, we're not choosing the fountain of living water. We're choosing this broken thing that doesn't even hold water. So it's dry in the bottom. God is the fountain of living water. And if we go to him, that means he always has what we need. But rather than satisfying our souls with his water, we try to take in other things. We try to give other things importance and weight that only God can give. But those things can't hold water. We can't go to them to find any real quenching for our thirst. So what are we left with? We're left dry. We're left empty. We feel the same emptiness as the cistern. We're thirsty and there's a stream that's pouring right next to us. And that image, broken cisterns that can hold no water, is a super powerful image. It sounds like disappointment. It sounds like futility. 
sounds like wasted effort. It's, a, it's an image of, of emptiness. And now I think we've kind of come to why this is super important for us. The only outcome of worshiping false gods is going to be disappointment. It can't fill us. To put it another way, to chase something empty, the people have become empty. They, they have shown that we inevitably, inevitably become what we worship. And that, that's kind of the thesis statement. If we back up to verse 5, and that's kind of the thesis statement he says. Uh, look up ahead in, or up above in verse 5. He says this. This is what the Lord says. Why did you, what did your ancestors find wrong with me that led them to stray so far from me? Was it really... Was, was it, it, God's like, it, actually, it wasn't me. It was you. This is you, right? Like, <laughs> this is a, in the, one of those funny breakup stories, God's like, this, the problem is, is definitely you. Yeah. Um, so the, what did they find wrong with you? It was me. They worshiped worthless idols only to become worthless themselves. So God, these are the same two things that we saw earlier. God feels slighted. God feels rejected, spurned, cheated on. Why would you turn away from me? And then he says the second statement about it. It's, this is our own self-destruction. They worshipped worthless, worthless idols only to become worthless themselves. And they, they've become what they worshipped. And, and, and here's the thing. It's not just them. It's not just them. We have to put ourselves in this story. To, if we keep this as a story about somebody else, we do so at our own peril. This isn't removed from our story because we also chase after things that don't give life. We, we give ultimate importance and ultimate allegiance to things that can't bear that much weight. They're, and if they do, they're going to break and we'll be left empty. So, for example, if we spend our lives trying to keep ourselves comfortable, if that's kind of our top value, we're going to find ourselves one day facing an illness or facing a tragedy that ends up shaking our comfort, and we're going to be left with none. We wanted comfort. That's what we were seeking after, and now we have none. It's gone. It's empty. If, even, let's just pick on, you know, if, if our whole life revolves around our kids, our kids are important. Let's be clear. Our kids are very important. But if there is some kind of distance or estrangement, or even, frankly, if our kids start to show a proper amount of independence, then we're going to start to wonder what is our worth. It makes us question who we are and what it's all about. And it's even more what we are saying to God. If we, if we, make, if we make anything other than God our, self, our important things, we're telling him, listen, God, you, you, I know you're supposed to be the most important, but you're not. And actually, that's kind of saying to him, you're not God, and you're not the boss of me. C.S. Lewis has a great quote about that. He's an author, and he says this, And out of that hopeless attempt has come nearly all that we call human history. Money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empires, slavery, the long terrible story of people trying to make something other than God which will make them happy. So we keep trying to find something other than God to make us happy, and it's not working. They're all empty cisterns. So here's the thing. All of us, though, at some points, we have ignored God. We have all fought against 
God. We've wanted God out of our business. And if we do that, that's making empty, broken cisterns. It's making our own idols. And we're trying to end up creating basically a, a world or a universe where God is palatable to us. Or the universe is kind of the way that we want it to be. But the thing is, a God who never contradicts us is not God at all. It's empty. And if we worship this empty God, we're going to get empty too. So the question for us is, hey, does, God, does your idea of God never contradict you? And, and I'm not thinking about your neighbor. I'm not thinking about somebody else. I'm asking this for us. What about us? What about you? Does God ever contradict you? Contradict what you want. Some people have gone to church for a long time and have never thought about God challenging their thoughts or their pattern of words, or their mode of living. And author G.K. Beale, he's helpful in pointing out that these, what that means is these old idols, these old gods that we thought were gone, that, that got something part of like kind of Babylonian times or whatever, that they're actually not gone. He says this, he says, they may have changed their names or maybe lost their personal names altogether in favor of more abstract concepts and phrases. Personal autonomy, liberated sexuality, but also patriotism, economic growth, national security. And all of these things, some of them may be important, but they are not God. They have to be in the right order of importance. So we might have ideas about what God is like, and we put them together from our interactions. Maybe you have had some experience in Scripture. Maybe Maybe it's just from what other people have told you. But Maybe we should let God tell us what God is like. And what is the real God like? There is an interesting passage about this in the book of John. And this is Jesus talking with his disciples. And he's talking with a specific guy named Philip. And Philip says to Jesus, he says, Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. And Jesus replied, have I been with you all this time, Philip? And yet you still don't know who I am? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So why are you asking me to show him to you? It's right here. So Jesus is saying, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. This God who maybe seems somewhat distant to us at times has now come near in a person to show us what he's like. If you want to know what God is like, you need to look at Jesus. Because he looks like Jesus. He is Jesus. So Christ, his mission was to be a truly faithful person like no one else in history had ever been. He was the one good person in all of history. He ended up getting rejected. And he was killed. But the Bible tells us that that was filled with cosmic meaning. That the reason why he came was he was the one who came to break idolatry. He says, all of us have hearts that long after something else, and I've come because you guys, we are prone to wander, Lord, we feel it. We are people who wander away from God, even God that we love. But he came and he faced evil so that he would be the one righteous, good person. The thing is, you and I, we're never going to be good enough. We've already proven that we've actually been kind of idolatrous whether to a lot or a small extent. We have all of our hearts have turned away from God. So we're not going to be able to come to God in front of him and say, hey, we're good. I did enough good stuff 
God's like, no, your heart has always been after something else. And even sometimes you used me, not for me, but to get what you wanted. But if we are in Christ, what the promises are in Scripture is that we, God sees us through the lens of Jesus. And it's the only way that we can be saved, that Christ was the only one who was faithful. He was the one who faced that evil and came out victorious. He rose again. And it's by faith in him, that's the only way that we could be able to say, to stand before God. Because he was the one that was faithful and we wear his faithfulness. So we become what we worship, was what, Jesus, what Jeremiah says. So we have to ask the question, who are, what are we becoming? Who are we becoming? And I think part of what we need to do is we need to admit, first of all, that we have not been becoming always more like God. The reality is we have not given the proper recognition to God. We have not given him the importance that he deserves. We have not get, made him the center of our lives. And it, just like the Israelites there, we have also wandered from God. We have been left. We wanted to be left alone. We wanted God to let us do our own thing. So that's the first step. And the second thing we need to do is to then recognize that God chased after us. Christ died on our behalf and we can trust him. So it's not going to be by our own efforts of reaching up to God, not by how amazing you are and proving your way to God, but it's going to be based on God's undeserved grace. He says, I choose you, just like the extroverts choosing us introverts, right? Undeserved grace. Wonderful. <laughs> we worship God, and we're going to become like him. So the question is, are you becoming like Jesus? And I'm not saying, do you have stronger arguments for Jesus? I'm not saying, do you have a, a stronger opinion about it, um, why there is a God or some kind of an argument or a, um, maybe just a fixed opinion, or if you've memorized more Bible. I'm not asking that. Those aren't bad things. They can even be good. But the question is, are we becoming like Jesus? And people around us will be able to see that objectively. And what we've said is, we, if we become what we worship, who we are becoming is going to be indicative of what we are worshiping. And Jesus is patient. He's creative. He does what's right and says what's right. He's concerned with the marginalized. He's humble. He's self-giving, even to the point of death. Are we becoming like that? This... Uh, it, it's, it's easy to answer that one really quick, flippantly, I think. I, I didn't, um, this one, I think, needs to trouble me a little more this week. So let's, let's make that our action step. This week, I want you to ask yourself this question. Am I becoming more like Jesus? And maybe you don't really actually know what that means. What does that really look like? If you're super new to this, that's all right. Uh, I would like to say, rather than relying on specifically what I say, why don't you start to read some of the book of Mark this week? There are four biographies of Jesus called the Gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Just read the book of Mark or read the book of Luke, something like that. Uh, you can read that in a, in a couple hours. Uh, investigate, what is Jesus actually like? Look and see what Jesus did, what he said. And, and maybe you're somebody who's Maybe you've had some bad experiences with people from church. 
Uh, I know that is the case. Even for people who go to this church, they have had those experiences. They have heard people who proclaim loudly that they are Christians, but then rather than seeing a pattern of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, all of that stuff, you've seen people respond who are fearful, people who are act in a tribal kind of way, us versus them, who are petty, who are cold-hearted. Maybe we can have a little bit of pity and a challenge to say, yeah, they're not necessarily becoming like Jesus. And if we are not becoming like him, if that kind of describes some of our actions, or even just momentary actions, I can see moments where I don't look very much like Jesus, where there are times where I say, yeah, that, that's not right or good. I, you and I, we need to maybe have some of the most real moments we've ever had in our lives. Say, this is going to be terrifying, but maybe I've been in the church for years, and the conclusion is I'm not becoming like, more like that. And if that's the case, maybe we need to ask ourselves the question, maybe we've been worshiping something else. Maybe God is important to me, but maybe something else is winning and importance. And if that's the case, we need to just repeat those steps. Admit that we've been putting him not at the center. God, you have not been at the center. Something else has been the center. And I need to I rely again on the life of Jesus, that Christ is the one who saves us. It's not by knuckling down. I need to actually worship him more. Because I'll tell you, the world doesn't need more people who can yell their view of God louder. We've got plenty of that. What our world needs is more little Christ. That's the original meaning of the word Christian. More people who are genuinely growing more and more like Jesus because our eyes are on him. And you can only get there by worshiping. You can have strong convictions, but you're going to do it in a different way. You're going to have, it, have humility. You're going to have grace. We're going to call people to follow God. And we're going to be drawn like Jesus to people who are more marginalized. We're going to care about God's fame more than us getting credit, all that kind of stuff. It's going to look like little Jesuses, and we need some more of that. Let's pray. Lord, we ask you to help make us to look more like you. Help us to be honest and courageous to recognize places where we have not been. Maybe even part of our excuse, sometimes we look and we see other people who have not been Christ-like, and we say, I don't, I don't want anything of you, Jesus, because of your people. But Lord, help us, your, your people, who you've saved by grace, to worship you above all other things. That that can come out in our lives, in the daily interactions with our neighbors and our family and our friends and our loved ones. That people will see that you are working in us because we, we want you to be glorified. We're doing that because you're really great. You are the true source of living water. We pray that we will see you as such. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, kids are going to come back in now. Good timing. Well done, Amanda. All right, come back in, kids. I think there's a spot for the kids in the front.